0: Welcome to episode 202 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Wow, here we are. We just sat down and we were like, it seems like forever since we've done this. I know. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't either. But we're glad to be together. And thank you, everyone out there who's here to listen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We were also just chatting about, we really missed a great opportunity on episode 199 to do a bookish rendition of 199 bottles of beer we could have done 199 books on the shelf we're thinking of it many weeks too
0: late but (laughs) it's a good idea
1: (laughs) well we have some thank yous we have new patreon members in our community yes thank you to debbie mary and kathy we really appreciate you thank you so much we also have an announcement some breaking news here You all may have already heard of this. I didn't know about this until our listener, Sigrid, posted on Instagram a remote control device to turn the pages on your Kindle app. I -hmm. was like, whoa. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That is amazing. It's like a little ring. Mm -hmm. And it has backwards, next, and then I guess a stop button. We'll put a link to the show notes to the one that Sigrid has. And her Instagram, by the way, it's Hatcher Stacks. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can connect with her. And it's kind of a neat thing. It's, yeah, I guess, TikTokers use it for their videos. Yeah, that's super cool. I saw that picture and I was
0: like, I would have never thought that something like that existed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you could use it for taking selfies and stuff, too. Is right. It's one of the things, too, that you can kind of line things up a little bit better. and so, I mean, we do that all the time. when so we're having to set a timer to Mm -hmm. take a picture. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Sigrid, for posting that. That is really cool. And I have to say, I'm struggling with a little bit of what I'm calling reader's thumb, which has nothing to do with my Kindle app. It has to do with holding big books in my left hand. (laughs) And so I love the idea of something that maybe is making your hands do a little bit less work
1: yeah moving a different way instead yeah. of the chronic sh- sh- yeah sh- with your thumb or what have you yeah
0: that's the fake sound of a kindle page
1: turning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> chris what are you currently reading well i am listening to the vanishing of carolyn wells by rebecca Rio berry i am loving this book so much i'm in chapter five right now and carolyn wells was a hugely popular writer In the late 19th century, early 20th century, she wrote 180 books, if not more. She wrote in so many different genres and for different age groups. It's amazing. Actually, I also attended an online event, so I'll talk a little bit more about some details there. But the audiobook, I'm enjoying very much, and I'm probably going to have to get a physical copy as well, because she mentions other authors and I want to check out the citations to go down rabbit holes and things like that. And she also quotes a lot of Carolyn's poetry and rhymes. She was known for being able to put together a good rhyme and did them at certain events for like author anniversaries. So I'd love to be able to have that to read because they're quite humorous. Fun. I'm
0: also listening to a memoir called Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of life interrupted by Suleika Jawad. And I learned about this book because I watched a movie called American Symphony about the musician John Batiste. Suleika is his wife. And I had no idea about them, because apparently I don't pay attention to pop culture. And I didn't know about this memoir, because it's now out in paperback. So it's been out for quite some time. The reference to Life Interrupted is about a column that she had in the New York Times. And this memoir is about her life. And it starts in her early 20s, where she's a recent college graduate, living in Paris, having a grand time as early 20 year olds often do. And then she starts to have physical problems and cut to the chase. She's diagnosed with leukemia, ends up moving back to the States And Life Interrupted was a column that she wrote when she was in hospital getting cancer treatment the first time. Then the memoir goes through all of that. And now I'm in the part where she's on a journey after going into remission. Spoiler alert, if you watched American Symphony, you know that she comes out of remission and her cancer is back. And so she's in treatment again. But that is not what this memoir is about because the memoir finishes before that happens. She's a great writer. It's very interesting. And she narrates and has a beautiful voice. I'm really enjoying it. Again, it's called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted.
1: I'm also reading Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. I just started it. This is our first quarter read-along pick in our year of reading romance. I also started the audio, and Tina on Goodreads asked a question if anybody else is listening to it via the audio because she was curious what they thought. I understand now what Tina was asking for feedback on, and that's the narrator does a French accent for one of the characters. Black Daniel is one of the characters. And it's not always consistent. It's challenging. And I was listening to the book at a higher speed. And I didn't get the accent quite as much at the higher speed, which I thought was interesting. But that did get me started. So I started with the audio. And then I did a little tandem, reading and listening. And now I'm just reading because I didn't really get into the audio all that much. There were some pauses between each sentence as well. So I kind of felt like it was taking a while. Mm, Yeah, It wasn't as smooth as I am used to maybe. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to start it. And I was going to do both. So now I'll
0: just plan to start with the written word.
1: If you have the audio, give it a listen. And I know some people have enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So it just could be a taste thing. yeah, And also a mood thing, as we all know. I'm a super moody reader and listener. So it could be that as well. Yeah, and we're going to be having a zoom conversation about this book on
0: Sunday, March 3rd at 7pm Eastern Time. Email us if you're interested. Also, we have a Goodreads thread going about it. And Robin, I think it was on Goodreads, or maybe it was on social media. She said that the indigo mud recipe in the back looked really good. So is it a pie or a cake? It's a mud pie. A mud pie. Yeah,
1: and I told her I was definitely going to try it. This says, it's a dense brownie-like cake covered with a thin layer of marshmallows and topped by an awesome chocolate icing that's delicious as a love scene. (laughs) 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 Indigo Mud is quick and easy and should be made the day before it's served. Oh, good to know. Okay, I'm going to try
0: to make it before the read-along so we can... Talk about it.
1: Oh, that'd be yeah. fun. And I know
0: that that recipe was added to this particular edition, which is the most recent reprint. So if you have an older copy and you don't know what the heck we're talking about. That's
1: what it is. Yes. And just shoot us an email and we can text you a picture of yeah. it. I am enjoying the story so far. So it was just the audio was giving me a little hiccup action. And we're both currently reading Black Love Matters. Real Talk on
0: Romance, Being Seen, in Happily Ever Afters, edited by Jessica P. Pride.
1: This is a set of essays. Yeah, it's an anthology with 13 different contributors talking about Black love. From all different
0: vantage points, some of it is a little bit more historical in nature. Some of it is very hip and of the moment, I feel like. One of them is really irreverent. I was like, whoa, mama. And that one's by Sarah Hannah Gomez. It's called Romance Has Broken My Dichotomous Key. Just from the start of the title, mm. I was like,
1: "Ooh, I got to read that one. Yeah, I didn't read that one yet. I've read about five of them. And I started with two essays that had queer in the title. I'm enjoying it so much. The essays I've read so far are thoughtful, thought-provoking, and really different. Like one of them is borderline theoretical. It reminded me of reading some literary theory when I was in grad school And that's by Deshaun Harrison, Black Love Is, dot, 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 Black Love Ain't. Mm -hmm. And I I really enjoyed that, quite thought-provoking. The official intro is by Jessica Pride,
0: who is the editor of the anthology, but Beverly Jenkins has the introductory essay. And I thought Beverly Jenkins was really interesting, and she really takes you through a timeline of Black romance writing, including when she enters the picture with her own writing. Some of that story we had heard when we saw her in person at the Yale Romance Conference.
1: One of the things about just the essays I've read before, it is a great resource for just listing authors Mm -hmm. to black authors. So it's a great place to start with that. And I'm noticing some names that are repeated not just Beverly Jenkins, but others as well. So it's going to be a good place to compile a TBR. Yes, in the back, there's a bibliography with some additional reading. But then
0: also what Chris is referring to is a section that says, referenced and recommended, and it's in the order that they're mentioned. So it's books, and movies and things like that. And we're having a conversation with Jessica Pride at the end of this episode. So enjoy our conversation with Jessica and get your hands on a copy of this.
1: Yeah, it came out just last February, so it's it's fairly new. So Emily, what have you just read? Well, I continued with my short
0: story project. I'm trying and so far have, have been semi successful at reading one short story every Monday. And the reason I've been semi successful is the last two Mondays, I actually was at the gentleman caller's house. So I didn't have my own sets of story collections that are piled everywhere in my own <laughs> home. So we went to his shelf, and I asked him to pull out a collection for me. And he had one that was from Annie Prue. I love Annie Prue. She is the writer of Brokeback Mountain, very well known short story that first appeared in the New Yorker and was made into, a, I think, Academy Award-winning film adaptation. I've read The Shipping News, which is one of her novels. So I took this collection up to the bathtub. I did not drop it in the tub, which felt like a success. (laughs) It does have a really nice table of contents. I looked it over and decided to read one that's called Used But Not Abused. That name really sounded intriguing to me. It was only four pages long. I read it twice it made absolutely no sense. And I was just like, what the heck? I went down, I said to the gentleman caller, this short story made no sense. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, you <laughs> didn't really care. And then the next Monday, when I found myself at his house again, I was like, I'm going to read that story again. Read it again. I finally I went to him, I said, really, this made no sense. And so he read it. And then he said to me, Emily, that's a novel. It's a novel. <laughs> So I've read a chapter out of Annie Prue's novel called That Old Ace in the Hole.
1: <laughs> well you're gonna A for effort exactly. on that. Exactly.
0: Three times was not the charm, but it did uh release me from my feelings of idiocy, I guess. So then I decided I'm gonna be very safe and chose the collection The Best American Short Stories. <laughs> so I was really sure that these were actually short stories. This is twenty thirteen. These are these collections that come out every year with a guest editor, and this particular year it was Elizabeth Strout. This just cracked me up after my experience with reading a non-short story story. She says the reason that she chose these stories had to do with voice, and that we really hope the writer knows what he or she is doing, and we really hope that this sense of authority will be sustained throughout. We look for this the same way we look for authoritative competence in any other trade. We don't want to be lying on a dentist chair with a wide open mouth and hear the dentist say, oh, hell. (laughs) We don't want a plumber to gaze at a broken pipe that has flooded the floor and mutter, huh, I don't know. And we don't want a writer whose voice wobbles or becomes false. I don't think readers think about this analytically, but instead they experience it as a feeling about the writer that grows stronger as they read. I want to be in your company. I want to keep going. I like the way you sound. I thought that was really lovely and felt like I was probably in good hands with any of these stories since Elizabeth Strout edited. But I did choose Referential by Lori Moore. I love her. She's a great writer. And this was originally published in The New Yorker. And it's quite a sad story about a single mom who has a son who's, I think, dealing with some version of psychosis and is hospitalized and how her life is limited by his situation not an uplifting story but very well written so those are my <laughs> adventures in short story reading <laughs> slash chapters out of a book reading
1: great you're still rocking it
0: <laughs> remember how I was complaining about how I wanted novels to have table of contents
1: mm-hmm.
0: well this Annie Prue novel has
1: a table of contents and you put it out there to the universe that's and right <laughs> the universe provided <laughs> Well, I finished The Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Canez. So this is a vampire story. It's a love story. And I had heard that it was more love story than vampire story. So there wasn't consistent vampire action throughout. And I think I said to you at one point, like, you don't even need the vampires in this story. Well, I changed my tune as I kept listening, because I did listen to this as an audio. And It's a really good audio. It has two narrators, a male and a female, and they do a great job. The vampire story, so this is set in like 1840. It's set in Mexico. The white people are aggressively moving in from Texas to take land, and that's planted very early on in the tale. And at one point, the Battle of Palo Alto is part of the story. It's part of the narrative. And so the vampires are very early on in the story. They're present at this battle and then at other points in the story. And I really want to talk with somebody about this because I can't tell you what I want to tell you without it being a big, <laughs> major, nasty spoiler. The vampires do a couple different things. And I think one of the things, as it does in vampire stories, <laughs> where there's a hero, that's Nana, the the woman in this story, You know, it reveals a lot of her character and her courage. So really Mm. good book Mm. with a really excellent cover. Check out the cover if you haven't seen it. And then I do recommend it. I was interested in the love story and I'm calling it a love story because we've talked about the difference between love stories and romances that romances have a happy ending. Like that they have to have a happy ending and there has to be a main romance so I'm thinking this is more in the love story category. Because there's not a happy ending. Well, see, now that's spoilery, Emily. Spoilery. You're leading me to the path of <laughs> not being a good
0: podcaster. Um, well, but I mean, I think that's because I wonder that too now, since we're so focused on romance this year, and I look at books and you know how the publisher will list the categories and if it says romance, then I think, well, then I'm safe with knowing this is a happy ending, yes, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. So folks, totally. you can just go look this book up and decide for yourself. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, it's a tough book because everybody gets worked over a little bit because it's, it's tough times for one. They're young lovers that are torn apart, which is painful. And there's war and colonizers coming in. So it's tough in that regard. Yeah, but I really enjoyed it. I had my doubts about it early on, but I'm glad I stuck with it. So again, that's The Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Cáñez. Nice. Oh, and one more thing is the character Nena. N-E-N-A is her name. And in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mina Harker is one of the main characters. And so I wondered if there was a nod to Bram Stoker Mm. there. I I haven't looked at any reviews of this book yet or author interviews, but I'm curious to do that.
0: How do Dracula and vampires relate to each other? I mean, Dracula was the original, right? Well, he was an early
1: one, but there were vampire stories before him. So he's the most well-known. Yeah, he's kind of the most well-known. I think he was one of the first that it was like a solid long novel novel. And it came out in the late 19th century when publishing was very much entrenched. So it just had longevity with that. And there was a stage adaptation early on. And then the Bela Lugosi movie adaptation came out. While they were shooting the English version of Bela Lugosi starring as Dracula, there was also a Spanish version being filmed at the same time. And I believe they used the same set. Mm. Yeah. Dracula is the most iconic So people make nods to that, but it's not as if Bram
0: Stoker invented them and everyone who writes a vampire novel has to make nods to that.
1: Right, exactly. Like, I think it just, it's so well known. Yeah. Because there was the movie and then there were all the Vincent Price movies. So as long as a vampire is sucking on blood, then it's a vampire. That's the main thing. I think what makes a good vampire story is when the vampire laws within that story are consistent. Mm. Like, can they be in daylight? Can they be around garlic? Does the cross scare them? Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. that kind of stuff. So when there's inconsistencies, that's when it's kind of a problematic vampire story, because it's like, oh, you just did that because it was convenient for the plot when mm. you're violating your own laws that you said earlier by examples. Right, oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, like Carmela by Lafanu, that was before Dracula. Mm-hmm. There are a couple others. There is a book about the history of vampires in Western literature. And I think there are some predating vampire stories in Eastern literary traditions as well. Mm. Yeah, but he really took it and turned it into something that people feared in that day and age that is still relevant today. So, The Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Cáñez. Well, I read a novel that also
0: has a unusual character in it. It's called Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. This is a novel that came on my radar, because when I went to that event with Ann Patchett and Elizabeth McCracken, they both mentioned it as a book that they loved. It's a very tiny novella, and was originally published in the 80s, and then became famous later and was republished in 2017 by New Directions Press, which is the copy that I found when we were at a library in Old Lyme, interviewing Luann Rice. And it was facing out, asking me to pick it up. And it's got a great cover. It looks like it could be the windows on a ship or a creature. It's bright green, and it has these little eyeballs and then little frog-like lips on the bottom. There's a blurb on the front that says, a perfect novel, The New Yorker. Many people call this a perfect novel. On the back, John Updike also refers to it as a parable. So I was thinking about that as I was reading it. It's about a housewife who's feeling very lonely. She's lost a son and then had a miscarriage when they tried to have another child. Her husband is out gallivanting and having an affair. She's at the house. Word comes out on the television that A creature has escaped from a local oceanographic science center where the creature was being used for tests and research. And lo and behold, it ends up on her doorstep. And she ends up having a relationship with it. Or does she? I'm not going to say much else about it, except... Well, I am, of course, I'm going to say more about it. (laughs) Um, It's compared to books like Revolutionary Road and The Ice Storm. So people who are living in that classic housewife situation and what their life is like and how maddening it can be and how they try to keep the house going and keep up appearances and perfection. And what do they need in their life to find pleasure again? And I would say that's the main component of this novel. It was really easy to read and really interesting and very short It's also, I felt like, a bit of a revenge story. Mm. None of the reviews that I read talked about it in that way, but that was one of my takeaways from it. So if any of you have read it, I'd be curious about that. When we posted a Booktube video where I talked about this, the author Will Schwalbe said something about it because I guess he had mentioned it at a Booktopia event. And so several Booktopians read it as well and mentioned reading
1: it. So... People call it the perfect novel. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, and it's interesting to compare it to Revolutionary Road as well. I haven't heard too many books compared to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't read that book, but I watched
0: the movie with Kate Winslet, and it does have some of that pent up frustration at being a housewife and living in society in a particular way.
1: Interesting. Yeah. See, I read the book, I didn't see the movie. Mm. So
0: if you've read it, let me know. Mrs. Caliban, Rachel Ingalls. Oh, the other thing I did want to say is she didn't get much notice for her books until she did. And she was older. And she really enjoyed getting that notice, but also lived a very quiet life in London. She was an expat. She was an American
1: woman living in London, and died, I think, in her early 70s. Well, I finished a novel of a woman who died when she was only 40. I finished Finding Margaret Fuller by Alison Pataki. This novel comes out March 19th. So if you like novelizations of a woman's life, Margaret Fuller was in the 19th century, very prominent writer. She's known as a, a feminist, a philosopher, an activist. She wrote in a lot of different genres too. I know she wrote some poetry. She wrote the travelogue. Summer on the Lakes, which I plan on reading later this year, but I think there have been some novelizations about her before. This one, though, spans from 1836, when she first goes to visit Emerson in Concord and sees Thoreau, who's living there as the Emerson's handyman, and the three of them become friends, and across the street is the Elcott family, and she befriends a young Louisa May Alcott. And so it's fun. There's some lovely scenes of Margaret Fuller and Thoreau and Alcott walking through the woods, looking at butterflies coming out of cocoons and things like that. Really lovely. And for the longest time, it did kind of focus on that Concord group of people. But then Margaret, as in real life, she worked in Boston, and then she was in New York City working as a newspaper writer, and then she became really the first foreign correspondent. She worked for Greeley's newspaper. He proposed that she go to Europe, and she did. So she was reporting back from like London. She met Wordsworth, and then she was in France where she met George Sand and Chopin. They were lovers, very scandalous, to the point that the family Margaret Fuller was traveling with declined to attend the event that night claiming that their child wasn't feeling well when really the wife was kind of too proper to be in that kind of company but of course margaret fuller loved it but then she goes to rome and she totally falls in love with rome and feels like she has found her home and her people long story short i just love margaret fuller and i didn't get a sense of her as a person necessarily throughout this book but i like the overview of her life I guess I wanted a little bit more of her work in here, but then the book would have been 800 pages long. It's like 389 pages. So it is not a short novel. It is a wonderful introduction to the life of Margaret Fuller though. So I highly recommend it. If you have the slightest interest in her, check it out. And it's gonna be a great jumping off point then for you to read some of Margaret's own work. And I'm kind of using this book As a jumping off point for myself, because Margaret Fuller is my writer of the year that I wanted to explore more. So I'll be reading her Summer on the Lakes coming up soon. And will you read a biography? You know, I did. I've read Megan Marshall's biography Mm. of Margaret Fuller a couple years ago, which I don't have. I looked Mm. all over my house and I don't know if I loaned it to somebody or I can't imagine I would have given it away, but I might revisit that. Biography. There are several others on her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Because in the author's note, Alison Pataki says that she really tries to follow the documented history. The only change she made was she has Thoreau live with the Emersons a little bit earlier than he actually did, but it was in 1836 that they all did meet. So that's accurate. Oh, and there was one more thing like the man that Margaret Fuller falls in love with and marries, actually had three overbearing, withholding older brothers. And in the novel, she just makes it one, because she's like, the poor guy, ready. Right? He yeah. didn't, you know, <laughs> she he didn't need to burden the the right. reader with three. Listeners, I don't
0: know if you remember, but Lori Lico-Albanese, the author of Hester, talked to us about Margaret Fuller, and she too is working on a novelization
1: Which I don't think will be out in your year of reading about Margaret Fuller, but coming soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that as well. I mean, she's such a fascinating figure because she was so well known, like she was famous. George Sand was like, woohoo, I'm meeting Margaret Fuller. And people were just enthralled with her because she had such a strong voice and was about equality for women, for all people. When women are not equal, it harms Everyone in society. You know, she died so young. She was actually coming back to America in part because they were exiles from Rome. They couldn't go back. Her husband was a soldier in Rome, so it wasn't safe for them to go back. They were in Florence when they fled Rome. And she got an invitation to speak at the first women's convention at Seneca Falls. That's one of the reasons they were going back to America was for her to speak at that because she was considered the mother of the cause. And they all perished in a shipwreck on the way home, which is just so tragic. Get to my point. That's why she is so compelling a figure. What would the world be like had she lived? Right. Life interrupted of a very important, influential person. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And she butted heads with some people, like Edgar Allan Poe. Apparently they had words, but he eventually came around and appreciated her. I will... Look forward to chatting with people about this book, Finding Margaret Fuller by Alison Pataki. Again, it is a novelization of Fuller's life out March 19th.
0: Right on. Well, I did read a love story that had a happily ever after in our year of reading romance. I'm trying to add some to my repertoire. And this one is called How to End a Love Story by Yulin Kwong in real life, Yulin Kwong is a writer in Hollywood, and she is currently adapting two of Emily Henry's novels. Emily Henry's a romance author. She's adapting both her novels, um, Beach Read and People We Meet on Vacation. And so this novel is a little bit meta. The story starts in chapter one where the main character is sitting at her sister's funeral. So the first sentence really grabs you. And then someone walks into the funeral who is the cause of her sister's death. And everyone in the family gets really upset. And then chapter two starts 13 years later. And this woman now is a famous novelist of a YA series that's been sold to be made into a serialized television show. Sometimes authors are a part of the screenwriting process and sometimes they're not. And she negotiated to be part of it. So she flies to Hollywood from New Jersey. I think she's living in New York City, but she's from New Jersey originally. And that's where her sister died. And she walks into the writer's room for the first time. And there's the person that killed her sister in the writer's room as one of the lead writers. He's a man, she's a woman. And right away, she's just angry. And you can see that she's carrying the burden of grief, as is he for the situation. Now, what you learn, trigger warning, is that her sister killed herself. She jumped in front of the car he was driving. So he didn't kill her on purpose, but he was behind the wheel. And so obviously has some trauma from that experience, as does the sister who has trauma because her sister died. And now there she is in this room with this man Mm -hmm. that she and her family, you know, they've never seen him since and they both went to the same high school. He was the football star, the prom king, and she was kind of a nerdy, proper do everything right kind of person and still is follows the rules. in the romance genre. Chris, I think this is one of those that's called enemies to lovers or something. Isn't that
1: Yeah, enemies to lovers? Yeah. yeah.
0: So that's what this story is. It takes place in Hollywood. There's some hot sex. At one point, I turned to the gentleman caller and I was like, I missed a lot of things in my early 20s, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's this interesting thing that happens when people experience grief, even if you're on either side of it. But if it's the same traumatic situation, you still share something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what this story is also about. His side of the story is he suffers from panic attacks and anxiety because of that experience in his life. And her side of the story is she's from an Asian family that never wanted to speak about it again. It was like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and we don't talk about these things. So she's learning how to verbalize her grief. And eventually they come around and realize that they can kind of help each other in more ways than one. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. This is her debut. And actually, one thing I want to talk about is the acknowledgments. I laughed so hard when I saw this. There's a lot of hot sex, y'all, in many chapters. So in the acknowledgments, she's thanking her parents and she says, I love you. And I'm sorry for all the ways I've made your lives difficult over the years. If you have turned to the acknowledgments to make sure you're in them before reading the novel, I suggest you skip chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, 21, 24, and 35. And if you've read them, I don't ever want to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Very funny. Adorable. I really enjoyed it. It's very Hollywood. You learn about like what it's like to be in a writer's room, which I've never understood. Again, it's called How to End a Love Story by Yulin Kwong. Her debut novel out April 2nd.
1: Nice. That's so cool. And that, the enemies to lovers trope, that started with Pride and Prejudice from Jane Austen, which is considered the or text of contemporary romance. Right. Which is mentioned quite often in Black Love Matters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Biblio Adventures. What have you been up to?
0: I had a fun and surprising Biblio Adventure. When I was leaving the Gentleman Callers this week, he handed me an envelope and he said, I have a book to pick up at Breakwater Books. Can you get it for me? And I said, sure. Breakwater is our local independent bookstore right on the Guilford Green here. He said, there's money to pay for it in the envelope. And I was like, oh, great. Oh, and he said, it's about the Tour de France, biking the Tour de France, because Jim's a biker. And I was like, okay. So I walk into... Breakwater Books. I said, I'm here to pick up a book, give the name. And what does she hand me? But the cookbook, Start Here,
1: Instructions
0: for Becoming a Better Cook by Sola Whaley. How sweet. Isn't that nice? Yes. Definitely not about the Tour de France. (laughs) (laughs) This is a cookbook that I have taken out of the library and had to return, I think, three times. And It was really thoughtful of him. It's a really interesting cookbook with a lot of instructions about how to do things, the techniques of being in the kitchen. And I've seen interviews where she said, my goal is you don't really have to overly refer to the recipes. Make these recipes, but learn how to open up your fridge and make things from what you have at home, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. So fun little surprise Biblio adventure.
1: That's so nice. That's great. And that is a big... Honking book.
0: Yeah, when the bookseller picked it up, like it was far back and she was reaching with one hand and she ended up having to move a lot of books and go in with two hands. It's very heavy. Cookbooks are made with that glossy paper.
1: Well, I had a fun time going to the New York Society Library in Manhattan. I was there for a day of research. I'm a freelance researcher. I support usually writers working in the humanities on projects, so if that is you and you need some research help in New York, New England, hit me up. Um, after I did the research that I was there for, I started looking around. I had a couple things in mind that I wanted to check out. So the New York Society Library—we've talked about it on past Biblio Adventures. We've both been there, and it's a membership library, so you do have to be a member to get into all the nooks and crannies, the study rooms, be able to check out books and things like that. They have other levels too. They have like an online level. I think it's $100 a year where you can check out eBooks and then X amount of physical books a year. But there's also a $20 day pass, which is what I did. So when I was exploring around in the stacks, I wanted to see if they had books by Sophia belzer Engstrand. She's the one who wrote Wilma Rogers, that book that was one of my favorites of last year about a librarian and they did not have that book. I was bummed. But they did have a copy of her earlier novel, Miss Mundy, which is about a teacher. And it has a great opening. I, I read the first couple pages. It's a teacher who's sitting there grading essays, an English teacher, and just the her red pencil describing what she's going through and how hard it is, you know, three hours going through 45 different essays and just kind of how exhausting that is and how your hand is so cramped and everything. Really nice start. So they only had that one novel by her, but they had five by her husband, who was also a writer, Stuart Engstrand. In his 1947 novel, The Sling and the Arrow, was dedicated to Sophia So I'm thinking that was her. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting was her copy of Miss Mundy, that thing was beaten to hell. Like it was taped together. It was checked out a lot and obviously really well loved. And all five of his books were in much better shape. Some of them, you could tell, had some wear and tear, but nothing like her copy of Miss Mundy that they had. So that was fun to see. And then I also... Got to read around in an original 1932 edition of Emily Dickinson Face to Face by Martha Dickinson Bianchi. That was really fun to read. And, you know, I looked at other stuff, too, like, of course, Willa Cather and and whatnot. Fun day. So if you're a member, you can check books out? Yes. Yeah, you can check books out. You can make a room reservation. They have private rooms. You can walk in there for free, of course, and sit in their main area and browse like the new books when you first walk in on the left hand side there's a wall of new books that they have out there and then just around the corner from that there's a common room with a huge working table so people are welcome to come in for that at no charge they usually have an exhibit right because we did that with aunt ellen Yeah. yeah 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 the exhibit that they have going on right now is celebrating their founding oh neat and it's their 270th anniversary So they have some of the earliest books that the people who established the library contributed Mm -hmm. to the collection. So that's very neat. Yeah. But to just go around and explore, that was a lot of fun too, just to see what they had on the shelf. I look forward to doing that again, and maybe finding some authors I don't know about. Yeah. Well, we had two joint
0: Biblio adventures. The first one was in Book Cougars headquarters, <laughs> where we had a great conversation with BookTuber Melinda
1: at A Web of Stories. Yes, we had a great conversation focusing on reading months and readathons and things like that, because we had a listener on our YouTube channel, ask about them when we did our nonfiction November. A hashtag slash reading month. Yeah. yeah. Some of these things start on YouTube. Some of them start on Instagram. Some of them start with the blogger. But they're just months or shorter time periods or even a whole year or maybe just a season. Like there's our friend Sue Jackson's big book, Summer, that regular listeners are well aware of because we do that one every year. But we had a YouTube comment asking like, what are these months and is there a list of them anywhere and we were like, hmm, we'll look into that for you. And so we know Melinda is really a booktuber on top of these things and participates in some. So check out that video. We had a really great time talking with her about them.
0: Yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It gives you a way to look at your stacks of books and have some purpose of how you're going to read them, what your approach will be to some of your big books, things like that. So yeah, it's really fun.
1: It is really fun. And it is also, you know, Breeding is such a solitary activity, and I think that's one reason why we're sitting here doing a podcast together, is that it's so much fun to listen to other people talk about books and get turned on to books that you would have never come across. And that's what some of these challenges do. They help you to look for different types of books Or just get exposed to different types of books if you're listening to a book podcast kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And also sometimes it's a relief because you think, okay, I don't have to read the book now because now I know about it. Right. (laughs) Chris and I talk about
1: how we get to live vicariously through each other, which is lovely. Yeah. And it's also sometimes an opportunity if there's a book in your reading life that you're really passionate about that you don't think gets read enough, it's going to fit into one of these categories so you can be an advocate for that book in a more public way. True. Yeah, good point.
0: So we also went to see Chris's
1: wife, Laura, read her novel in progress. Yes, that was so much fun. That was at the Chester Literary Festival at the Chester Meeting House. Beautiful old building. That was just perfect. The stage
0: was beautiful for them.
1: Yeah, it was really wonderful. This was an event that was through that Chester Literary Fest and sponsored by Breakwater Books. And so it was Laura reading from her novel in progress. Julie Fitzpatrick is a playwright and poet who did part of a solo show and read some of her poetry. And then a woman named Pat Laura did her solo show as well. So... Fun evening. Yeah, it was a really good time. Yeah. I also had a biblio adventure of the online variety. It was Rebecca Rejo Berry, who was talking about her book, The Vanishing of Carolyn Wells, through the Ohio State University Archive. And it was hosted by Jolie Braun, who's the archivist there. She's a curator of modern litton Manuscripts. Boy, was it a great event. And it really primed me for reading the book. So many of Carolyn's novels were just really well-received, hugely popular. Two of her best-known ones, and some that Rebecca recommends, Murder in the Bookshop. It's one of her best sellers, and it was Rebecca's favorite. It was recently reissued. And then another one is Vicki Van. And that was also one of her most famous novels, and a lot of people consider that her best. So, you know, it's just shocking to me how... Some writers who were so popular are just not known anymore. And part of the, with Carolyn Wells' situation, may be that she didn't have an estate lined up when she died. She didn't marry until she was way into her 50s. And then her husband died within the first two years. So she didn't have named heirs, really. She left a lot of her stuff to her maid, who'd been with her for 20 years. And then so some of her other works just ended up in different places, one of them at Ohio State University, hence them hosting that event, which was really wonderful. And I believe it was recorded and will be available. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Part of it's not surprising
0: to me. The only reason I say that is because there are so many books printed every year.
1: Yeah, but this was a woman that was so popular. One of the major game companies had a game, they licensed her name and created a game. If she wrote for silent films, she wrote for magazines, like somebody who's that famous to be just not even known now. I mean, I think it's terrible that she's not
0: known. I'm just saying it doesn't surprise me because there are so many more authors now than there were then. So now I just feel like there's so much out there that if there's not a good avenue, like you're saying for them, like if there's not a family legacy of some kind, I can see where Things just get lost, which is so sad. I mean, at least the archives aren't lost. Well, a lot of her stuff probably
1: was. I mean, there is family members. She had a niece that had some of her scrapbooks. So there's a great niece who was very supportive of Rebecca's research, Mm, which is great to hear because sometimes family might not be as enthusiastic or they might not care. It's like, oh, I didn't even know her. Why Mm. do I really care about this? So did Rebecca say how she came to be interested in her? Yes. And it's a great story. And it's also kind of related to this whole thing about literary reputations. You think about somebody like Thoreau. He didn't marry. He didn't have children. Yet everyone knows his name, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was part of that circle. Margaret Fuller was part of that circle. Boom. No one knows about her today, really, for the most part, other than niche people, right? Okay, so how did she find out about Carolyn Wells? She is in the rare book community and she and her husband were at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair one year. She was talking with her people and he went off and was browsing and she's a big fan of Thoreau. And he purchased as a surprise birthday gift a first edition of Walden, which shocked her. And within that book was a book plate of Carolyn Wells' And she's like wow that's so interesting you know because for one women back then weren't known to be book collectors necessarily just this wonderful gift obviously that floored her but then being part of the rare book community she noticed more and more randomly books with carolyn's book plate in them and like wow you know this woman was a real collector and she was she had a really great library and donated a lot of Whitman's Leaves of Grass. She had over 100 editions of his early output of that that she donated. But that's how she came mm. to know her. And
0: So she came to know her as a book collector before she came to know her as a
1: writer. Yeah, she was surprised when she started seeing books with Carolyn's name right. on it as the writer. Yeah. She's like, oh my gosh, she that's wrote books too? Yeah, Yeah, so that's how she kind of came along. And then, you know, once the word is out that somebody's working on a particular author or a collector or something, you know, that world is small enough that then people will say, oh, you know, I got to send this to Rebecca or, oh, I know, you know, somebody who's working on that writer. You also get turned on to resources that way. right? Yeah. That's super cool. Isn't that just that kind of, it was a gift that started it all. Right. right. Yeah.
0: Well, I had one other Biblio adventure that was made more meaningful by my gift from the gentleman caller, which was I did get to watch the video of the evening that Roxane Gay spent with Sola al Whaley where they were cooking together in her kitchen. Unfortunately, it's not available for the public. But I get Roxane Gay's weekly newsletter called The Audacity, which I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to receive that. And she has a monthly book club called The Audacious Book Club. And Sola's cookbook was her her choice last month. And it's the first time she's had a cookbook as one of the books. And it was really fun to watch. They just chatted. They were in Roxanne's New York City kitchen. But what was really interesting is they were cooking a recipe from the book. And Sola found a typo. Oh, wow. And she was so embarrassed. And she turned to look to Roxanne because it never said it didn't say to cut the chicken because that you're supposed to dice up the chicken and put it in this soup that they're making. And she turned to Roxanne and she's like, "Do you know how many people read these recipes?" And Roxanne was like, "I do." <laughs> it was so funny. She was like, "Really? Don't be embarrassed." She said, "I'm so embarrassed." And she's like, "Well, at least on reprint, you know, we now know that there's but she said it makes me and I totally get this feeling. She's like, "It makes me want to go back and recook every recipe in this book." Mhm. So lots of details and then Roxanne was saying that her bad feminist book She's like, do you know how many emails I've gotten about the typo on page 74? <laughs> you know, And God. she's like, people I know about the typo on page 74. <laughs> so it happens. But I felt so like I was embarrassed for her because of course, of all the recipes they're going to choose.
1: <laughs> right. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And people can be so judgmental about mm-hmm. typos. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a cookbook, it's a little bit different,
0: right? It never says to cook the chicken. so there's people who are going to put these two big chicken breasts in the soup and be like, mm, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so cut the chicken y'all on the I mean recipe, what do but, they think
1: it's just gonna like if you cook it enough it's gonna shred yeah and then or, you pull it
0: apart but yeah. it does say for six to nine minutes which is not oh, enough yeah, for chicken breasts for so sure. it's pretty horrifying is it I mean I'm sure she's like oh my god and of course this is going to be the one you know there's lots of recipes in here we're going to choose the one that has a anyway oh my god, that
1: is fascinating yeah <laughs> Oh my God, the world isn't perfect, people. It is not. Yeah. That's fascinating, though, to have it be a recipe. I mean, I guess it's like a medical book. Like it's that important, <laughs> right? Don't forget to suture <laughs> the wound. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God. Oh, gracious.
1: This episode is sponsored by... New indie
0: author, Catherine O'Neill, will be at Bank Square Books on March 2nd at 1 p.m., to sign copies of her novel, If Her Love Was Enough, a romance novel about a 22-year-old woman named Christine who doesn't believe she's good enough for love due to her demons and battling food addiction, until she met Gabriel. They fall madly and quickly in love, but will love win everything and everyone is against it? Check the show notes for more information about Catherine, her novel, and her book signing at Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut on March 2nd at 1pm. Okay, upcoming jaunts. We have a joint jaunt that we're very excited about. Yes, we're gonna get to meet Jenna Miller, author of Out of Character. She was on episode 174, where we talked to her about that. She was also... On our Booktube channel talking about that. So we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. She also contributed to episode 200. Yes. Yes, she did. Where she told us about this new novel, We Got the
1: Beat, which is out now. Yes. And that's what we're going to go see her about. She has several events lined up, kind of in New England. Yeah, And we're going to get to go see her at an unlikely story bookstore in Plainville, Mass.,
0: And that is on Wednesday, March 6th at 7 p.m. Come join us. Yes. Such a great bookstore with a beautiful event space upstairs. She's going to be in conversation with Alicia Dow, Jennifer Dugan, and Jenny Howe, a room filled of authors.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Both of Jenna's books are YA romances. They're queer, fat positive, if you're looking for more romances for your year of reading romance, uh, there are two great ones right there. The last time we were there, we saw Michael Fink Yes, with his book, Stranger in the Woods. Yes, yeah. And his new book is called The Art Thief. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. Yes. And we'll put a link in the show notes to those books.
0: And we interviewed him when we were at the bookstore. So we'll put a link to that episode. That was a long Time ago. That really was. Yeah. Thanks to Ann Kingman
1: for setting that up. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. So
0: that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to do that. And we're going to try to have lunch with Jenna ahead of time. which Yes. Hopefully that
1: works out. Yeah. yeah. Upcoming reads.
0: I have in my quest to read more short stories, one called Small Odysseys. Do you know that selected short series? It's at Symphony Space in New York City where famous people read authors' short stories. This is a compilation of 35 stories that they reached out to authors to write because they were celebrating an anniversary. And I also think it was because during the pandemic, they had to shutter the doors. And it's edited by Hannah Tinty. So, I will be adding some of these short stories to my Monday reading. Nice. And this is out from Algonquin, who sent us this copy, but it came out in 22, readily available. And then I also have Shark Hearts, a love story by Emily Habick. I don't know if it's a Happily Ever After, but this is a debut that a lot of people were talking about last year. So, I just got a copy from the library.
1: I'm very excited. Yeah, it's one of those animal books. Oh, is it? Isn't it? Like where somebody falls in love with an animal or? A shark, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> I have
0: no idea. It has a very cool cover. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, interesting.
1: Well, more to come I on know that. nothing about it. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> my upcoming reads, while we were at that event um, with my amazing wife, Laura, reading from her work in progress, Breakwater Books had a table in the back with books for sale, They had Laura's play, Magpie was there, a play by Julie Fitzpatrick, and then also this collection of poems by Julie. It's called Church on the Screen, a Sunday series of pandemic poetry. Julie's involved in one of the local churches here in Guilford. It's a congregational church. It's a Christian church, but she said it has a non-denominational feel, even though it really isn't. And we know a lot of people who are involved with that because they do a lot of social justice work. But during the pandemic, as so many churches and, and other faith organizations did, they had their services online. And so church on the screen is what this is about. So poems inspired by COVID. And one that she read there was when the church opened up again but everybody was still socially distancing so they had like people in every third pew or something like that so i look forward to reading more of these poems more to come on that and then also i just want to give an update on the moby dick buddy read that is starting on march 8th it's not too late To say you want to participate, it's never too late, but we are going to start reading on March 8th, and several people have expressed interest in joining along. Kate and I started originally doing the buddy read, and I'm happy that more people are interested in doing this. So we are going to start an Instagram chat, and if you'd like to participate in that, just shoot us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com, and you'll have to have an Instagram account for that if you're interested If you're not, we'll also have occasional Zoom conversations. We'll probably have the first one in later March, so you're aware. And the edition I'm reading is the Penguin Classics edition, but read whatever you have. Awesome. Yeah.
0: All right. In the out now category, these are books that we've talked about in the past on the podcast, and they are now available. If you pre-ordered them, lucky you, you're getting some book mail. Splinters by Leslie Jameson. We Got the Beat by Jenna Miller. Grief is for People by Sloan Crosley. Thirst by Marina Zhukszek. Summer at Squee by Andrea Wang. Right on. That's a good group of books. Hell yeah. All right. Coming up next, enjoy our conversation with Jessica Pride, editor of Black Love Matters, Real Talk on Romance, Being Seen, and Happily Ever Afters. Happy, Happy reading.
1: reading. We are thrilled to welcome Jessica P. Pride, editor of the new anthology, Black Love Matters Real Talk on Romance, Being Seen, and Happily Ever Afters. Jess is a public librarian in Southern Arizona, where part of her duties include running two book clubs, one focused on LGBTQ and one on Black books. She's a contributing editor for Book Riot, where she writes about all things romance and is co host of the podcast when in romance. We are excited to talk with her today about romance and happily ever afters. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jess, we're
0: focusing our reading on the romance genre this year. So when we found your anthology, we were really excited because we want to talk to some kind of what we would consider generalists, Mm -hmm. you know, I hope that's not an offensive term for you. (laughs) You know, to kind of just understand the genre more, because we're learning as we go. One of the things you said in your acknowledgments is that you had a process of, you know, putting this anthology together and took it to a publisher who didn't have much nonfiction in their list. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell us how the anthology came to be?
2: Absolutely. I was actually reading a different anthology called Well-Read Black Girl. And it's a very great anthology. I definitely recommend checking it out. It's about a bunch of Black women talking about them first seeing themselves in literature. It was great, but I didn't see myself. I sort of sat on that for a while. I wrote out a little thing to get it out of my head. Eventually, I couldn't get it out of my system. So I mentioned the idea of something similar but for romance to a Twitter mutual of mine who was an agent. And I just said, I have this idea. I can't let go of it. Do you think this would be a viable book? And she said, absolutely, let's go. (laughs) And she sent me information on writing a proposal for nonfiction, and all, helped me along the way. We sent it back and forth between each other before she even mentioned it to publishers. And she just sort of took it and ran with it. We ended up with Berkeley, who, like you mentioned, does not do a lot of nonfiction. So the fact that they wanted to do this with us was was very heartening.
1: That's great. How did you go about soliciting contributors
2: I did a little bit of everything. Some of them were people that I know personally. Some were people who were mutuals of mine on Twitter or Instagram or something else. And I just said, hey, would you mind if I send you an email and sent them my blurb of what I wanted this to be. Some people, I filled out contact forms on their websites. I didn't have to make any phone calls. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Actually, that's not true. I made a couple of phone calls, which was frightening because receiving cold calls is hard enough actually making one to someone you've never met (laughs) um, absolutely not i started with some of the like more intense ones first and i got a few this sounds like a great project but i don't have times and that was perfectly fine but it sort of helped me to get the jitters out before i could land on some people so yeah i did a lot of emailing and thumbing that first couple of months while I was writing the proposal.
0: So, we actually have Well-Read Black Girl here. Oh, awesome. What didn't you see here that you wanted to see, that you were focused on in Black Love Matters?
2: You know, a lot of Well-Read Black Girl is people talking about reading Toni Morrison and Toni Kadebambara Bambara all of these amazing greats of Black literature, but they weren't talking about genre fiction at all, really, seeing themselves in mystery, seeing themselves in sci-fi, seeing themselves in romance. And I really wanted to know that people shared that experience with me. And of course, the essays themselves that ended up in Black Love Matters sort of spread across the gamut of not just seeing yourself, but finding other experiences and things to talk about, that was what really sparked the idea that there were people talking about a lot of things, but none of them really shared my experience of starting to read romance at an all too early age (laughs) Um, (laughs) and finding it as a place to call home, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like that part in your essay where you talk about that, finding your mom's romance books and the older tropes with rape and kidnapping and things like that. Mm-hmm. In some of the essays, there's that thread, as you were mentioning, of seeing yourself and finding yourself and also the importance of positive role models mm-hmm. and being able to imagine a happy ending for yourself when you're black or queer or both. And just how important that is. I think it was Kosoko Jackson mm-hmm. talked about like the importance of content creators to have responsibility, to have a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. when they're writing, especially for teens. So we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about all of those things. I realized that was a couple different topics within there, but just the importance
2: of seeing yourself in not harmful ways. Absolutely. There's a lot of ways that we can see representation. And there's a conversation now about when there's so little representation that any representation is okay, that we want to see positive representation of ourselves, especially if all we've seen in the past is sort of this element of trauma. We want to see modern takes on things that have been around for a while. You know, you talk about my talking about the older romances that are questionable reads today. And we want to see people being sex positive, body positive, anti-racist. We want to see those characters in all of our media, because those are the best examples of making sure that everyone knows how to be a good person. (laughs) We deserve to be able to produce that material and not be told that's not realistic. Just because you haven't seen these people being presented doesn't mean they don't exist. From both sides, there is that necessary need of, if you go to the concept of windows and doors and windows, mirrors and sliding doors, it's good to have all three of those, the windows so you can see different people's experiences, the mirrors so that you can be reminded that there are other people like you and the sliding doors that can help you move back and forth within both of those experiences.
0: Yeah, you know, we went to um, a romance conference at Yale We're just down the street from Yale, and we got lucky enough to be able to go. It was in the fall. Mm -hmm. And one of the big takeaways that we had was they were talking about how the romance genre tends to be ahead. They're talking about consent in ways before it's what everyone in society is talking about. Mm -hmm. They're talking about where society is headed. Do you feel like there's an added pressure for black writers when it comes to that? What's happening in the genre, but also what's happening with race and in society?
2: I think that there is a bit of added pressure, in part because, especially in traditionally published romance, you have to stand out as the best of the best, the most interesting of the most interesting. Otherwise, the publishers will say, We have our Black queer author, we have our Black feminist author, we have our Black stem author. We don't need more. So uh, I think that as we talk about representation, what we want to see in our books is what we have to make sure to be writing. I think Black authors who are trying to make sure that all of these conversations that we're having about race, about consent about all of these things are really clearly written in their books um, because there is such a magnifying glass on their writing that there isn't always on the broader romance community's writing.
0: Yeah, it was one thing I wondered when you were reaching out to contributors, did you get any feedback that was like, I don't want to do this work for people, like
2: I want them to go out and do the work on their own? Surprisingly, no. Everybody who I contacted about it, now there might have been people who I didn't contact about it who were like, why are you doing this? But everyone who I contacted was very interested in writing from their own perspective for their community. I think I tried to make it as clear as possible that this was for the broader community, but also very much for us as well.
1: So I have a question about organizing the essays and how you did that because especially when I got to Deshaun Harrison's essay Mm -hmm. it took me back to like being in the 1990s in graduate school studying literary theory almost you Mm -hmm. know it's it's pretty intense and you have to really focus and follow along to get the points and everything. And I imagine an essay like that could have scared people off if it was too early on mm-hmm. in the collection. So what was the process like to decide what order to put all the essays in?
2: I almost wanted to print them out and shift them around, but I couldn't justify that much paper in my house. Um, <laughs> but I did kind of analyze like what the topics were. I wanted to make sure that there was an alternating feel of the more personal essays versus the more academic ones. And I did want to start off with something a little easier to read, a little more inviting before getting to something like Deshaun's one. What helped was I knew that I wanted to start with Beverly Jenkins's History of African-American Romance, and I wanted to finish with Christina C. Jones's. I wanted that one to be like the mic drop at the end. And then moving things around in the middle was mostly about just sort of flow and feel and making sure that it felt balanced. And it felt that way to me. I mm-hmm. imagine it felt that yeah. way to my editor because she didn't make any changes to it.
0: Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, (laughs) Good for you. One of the things I also loved about the book was it really forced me to look at myself in the mirror and some of my own perceptions. And also what I'm drawn to as I'm reading, like I immediately turned to Jasmine Guillory's piece about food, because that's one of the things I love about her novels is there's always great food and eating in them, (laughs) you know, But from the very beginning in the introduction, you talk about how black women read more than anybody else in the United States. I was like, oh, that's really surprising to me. And then I was like, well, why is that surprising to you? That's a really bad reaction to that statement. Mm -hmm. You know, can you talk about that? Making people look in the mirror in different ways, not just you being able to look in the mirror to see something for yourself? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I was on a different podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was the Book Riot podcast, the OG one. We were talking about things that people find surprising just because it's going to be built into them. And this book is one of many ways that we are working towards making people think about what their expectations are of books of people. We're using this one little piece of romance, particularly from the point of view of Black people to talk about how universal experiences are, but sometimes you have to come at it from the side to remind people that they can connect in ways to people in books that don't share their experiences the same way they can connect to people outside of books that don't share their same experiences through lots of things. And just being able to reflect on that and make that connection as you're reading might help you to expand your thought process outside of your reading life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. All of the essays made me think about something, and I really appreciated that about it. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you.
2: And
1: it also gives people tools to start looking at representation. You know, um, when people say, oh, well, there's a black character or there's a queer character, but what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Are they just a sidekick? Can you remove them from the story and not impact the story? How much are they in there as important actors, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, really important for people to start, you know, reading critically. It's more than just representation. It's what kind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads me to a question that I've been trying to ask people about the term sapphic. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, it was lesbian literature. Mm -hmm. And then I know queer became more popular. I've been seeing now a lot of sapphic. This is a sapphic romance. Can you speak to why the terminology changed? I know one of the contributors talked about how you need to revisit the labels that you put on yourself, Mm -hmm. that you accept for yourself, so I'm just kind of curious about this term sapphic. We were wondering if it's what the young people are saying now, Jess, you have to help us.
2: <laughs> um, as far as I know, um, from this elder millennial, I can't pinpoint when I first saw it being used, or even when I saw it being used far more than any other term. But I think as book people especially have been trying to utilize more broad terms that encompass more people that are more broad-reaching, that they've started using sapphic because lesbian meant that, well, what if one of the characters is bisexual, then it's not a lesbian romance. So then they started using queer, but queer encompasses too much. So when we want to talk about a romance between two or more female-presenting people, what term do we use? And uh, sapphic implies that, yes, these are going to be women, but they don't have to be lesbians. Some people have used sapphic as a term for when any grouping has a sapphic person in it. But I think most of the time it's when it's all women so that's a long way to say i think people have embraced it because it includes more people it's more inclusive than even just saying ff which is shorthand on the interwebs for saying that there are two women uh but what if one is a femme presenting non-binary person that still counts as sapphic. So there's all kinds of ways that language around romance in particular keeps evolving. I think this is the newest evolution of that group of people. Yeah. Cause I know queer, it does
1: represent something, but it erases a lot of individuality. Mm-hmm. It was, I think Nicole Jackson talks about that, how male is much more mainstream Mm -hmm. and the sapphic fiction is right now more represented in YA romance Mm -hmm. and then indie presses so it's just really an interesting thing because when people say queer I think they picture certain genders maybe Mm -hmm. or you know people representing yeah
0: this is a great segue to ask you Uh, you've been a high school librarian now you're in a public library is that true yes What is it like to be a public librarian in the kind of the political climate we're living in, but also with these differences with gender that are happening? You know, that's part of what romance, what we're talking about is a perfect example of like the romance genre is always, I feel like a step ahead. Mm -hmm. What's it like to be a librarian? Tell us.
2: It's a little different for me in particular, because I work behind the scenes. So, I can tell you that in our climate, especially living in Arizona, that we still get people who contact the library about certain books being on the shelves or books that they think shouldn't be on the shelves. And we get requests for reconsideration from people in our county. But we have an incredible readership that drive our collection. So they make sure that we're getting all of the newest stuff, make sure that they have diverse materials that we might have missed. But of course, we also work towards making sure that our collection is broad and diverse as well. I see far less of what others might be seeing out working in public service. But I do know that it's a little bit of a push and pull in in this particular environment
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting and, and how about your book clubs are those YA or adult or a mix
2: they're mostly adult we might read one or two YA books in a year but we mostly read contemporary fiction and non-fiction I try to make sure to throw in something like romance at least once a year
1: yeah. nice <laughs> right on yeah
2: <laughs> nice
0: <laughs> so question about that. So from a librarian's perspective, first of all, Black Love Matters has a great bibliography and a great list of references. If you want a reading list, the back of this book is a great place to go for both books and for film. But one question that just came up for us in our most recent episode is, when you go to look at how a book is categorized, it will sometimes say romance, but is that category necessarily assure you a happily ever after?
2: I would hope so. It varies by who is making those categorizations. If you see something that has a library of Congress or a subject heading that says romance in in your library catalog, I would hope that it is one with a happily ever after. It's a little harder if you're in a bookstore or Mm. at your local Target We see a lot of Colleen Hoover, and I would say that maybe half of her books are romance, and half of them really aren't because they don't have happy endings. You always hope. (laughs) (laughs) But there are some things that slip through the cracks, depending on who's categorizing them.
0: Okay, yeah, Yeah. I mean, and then there's this interesting move to try to get romance novels shelved in more general fiction, Mm -hmm. which I get. I mean, that's nice, but then it kind of... I would think if things are, are in the romance, you have a better hope of them, as you said, being romance. So it's kind of confusing for those of us who are trying to really understand the genre. Mm-hmm. I want my happily ever afters, Jess. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to be sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I had a question about writing for Book Riot. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what to write about? Or is it a team decision on what to write about for romance and other books you might write about? <laughs>
2: It's a little bit of both. The editors always have their requested topics that they ask for people to basically pitch themselves for. But also, if we come up with something that feels timely, or feels like nobody's really talking about this, but I think people should think about it, or I have this amazing experience, I need to write about it, then we can also pitch those individually. So it's a blend of things that other people are seeing around where it's like, I think we need a list of romanticity by people of color. Somebody write that list versus let me talk about my ideal romance bookstore and coffee shop.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. your, your articles are a really great resource, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you had one on like... Ten baseball romance novels, mm-hmm. things that doesn't come to mind, baseball and romance necessarily, but it's such a great resource. Oh
2: thanks.: Yeah, I love finding things like m- many subgenres and topics that people might say, "Oh, I found this one random football romance, but what about the other sports, or mm-hmm. you know something like that?"
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'm finding with the genre is that it's a little bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much to read. And even for us, you know, we're, we're choosing, we do quarterly read alongs, and trying to figure out what those four should be for the years, kind of stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we chose um, Indigo by Beverly Jenkins as our first quarter read along. Oh,
2: Such a beautiful book.
0: Yeah. yeah, we've got three more to go. We might be calling you, just and see if you can help us.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I've already started, I mean, reading this anthology is great, because some of the names that are repeated can mm-hmm. like, okay, taking note of that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, um, like Alyssa Cole. She seems very popular.
2: Yes.
0: So.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you decide what to read next?
2: Oh, gosh, it's like throwing a dart at a map sometimes. <laughs> um, sometimes I have particular things that I want to keep abreast of or events coming up. Like our local book festival is coming up and I want to make sure to read at least some of the romance authors who are coming to that. Otherwise I am very much a mood reader. So I'll Mm -hmm. think, you know what? I need a romantic comedy right now, or I want something intense and angsty, you know? And then I have a large backlist of books that I haven't yet gotten to. So, usually I can go shopping on my bookshelves and find
0: something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we all suffer the same, you know, problem. It's not a problem. It's a wonderful problem. Yeah. Well, this anthology is just great. It's a wonderful resource, so much to learn. And we're so glad you stopped by to tell us about it. And thank you.
2: Thank you so much for reading it and for getting amazing things out of it and for inviting me to talk with you all today
1: thanks for listening to the book cougars with chris wallack and emily fine we'll be back again with another episode in two weeks until then come chat with us on social media goodreads or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you'd like to help support our podcast Please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keough, Sound Design.